The collection of islands that we today call Japan have been inhabited by humans since around 30,000 BC. The first century AD Chinese work, Book of Han, referenced these islands and the people living there, but there's not a lot of evidence of activity, and thus not a lot of specifics about those inhabitants, noted by outside sources beyond that until a few thousand years later. When the country went through a period of consolidation, its various tribal groups and kingdoms beginning to unify under a single emperor, who became the first of an imperial dynasty that, according to official accounts, continues to this day. Though the information we have on this dynasty gets wobblier the further back we go, there's solid historical evidence that the current emperor's family line goes back about 1500 years, which covers all but the first 29 rulers. But past that, it's a little fuzzy, and it could be true, but it could also be a convenient fabrication to imply continuity. Whether 100% historically accurate or not, though, this lineage, which officially claims an unbroken chain of 126 emperors, beginning with that original Emperor Jimmu back in 660 BC, goes back a long way and spans the existence of the formal nation of Japan, though not the cluster of factions that inhabited the archipelago beforehand. Japan is generally considered to have had a golden age, culturally, from about 800 until around 1200 BC, the Heian period. Which was defined in part by the apex of ostensible imperial court control, though the real power was in the hands of the Fujiwara clan, which played puppeteer from behind the scenes. There was also an influx of Taoist, Buddhist, and Chinese influence, followed by a rebellion in China that led to a closure of borders and trade with the country, leaving Japan in comparable isolation for a while. A situation that resulted in a lot of independent development within the country, as opposed to the kind of development that emerges from cross pollination with other cultures. This period also birthed the concept of the samurai class, which would eventually become powerful enough to take control of the country and shift it away from this golden age into a feudal age, where militaries and military leaders carved the country up. Rebuilding society and culture to align with their martial sensibility. There were benefits to this state of affairs. The country was able to fend off two Mongol invasions, for instance, which is a lot more than most other cultures could claim at this point in time. But it also stoked and fed a near constant internal turmoil, which resulted in a power sharing structure that allowed local warlords, daimyos, To claim more and more power, while the main power loci, the shogun, slowly weakened in influence and military might. The span from 1467 until 1615 AD is often referred to as the Sengoku period, which was defined by a steady stream of civil wars, mini revolutions, and espionage related usurpations and assassinations. The consequence of the previous feudal system. Finally, falling apart. Samurai led groups fighting to take control in place of the dethroned shogun, 
countergroups of civilians forming to fight the samurai-led groups, and eventually, with the arrival of Europeans and early rifles into the country. These conflicts escalated in scale and devastation. Though the country was able to get out from under China's thumb during this period, it was a tributary state to its larger, more powerful neighbor up until this point, a relationship that China had with many other smaller, less powerful nations in the region for quite a long time. So that's something. This period eventually ended when three of the most powerful military groups that were fighting each other decided to recreate the feudal system under a new shogunate. And this newfound Tokugawa shogunate resulted in about 200 years of peace. This peace, though, was maintained through the application of a fairly hardcore hereditary caste system and a policy of isolation from the outside world meant to help the government strictly enforce political stability. This period, often called the Edo period, came to a fairly abrupt close between 1853 and 1857, after a period of foot-draggingly slow adoption of outside ideas, especially what we might call Western ideas related to science, technology, and warfare, followed by a somewhat breakneck adoption of the same, accompanied by a rapid modernization of local infrastructure and weaponry. That end was most concretely defined by United States Commodore Matthew Perry's expedition to Japan, during which the Commodore sailed four modern gunships to Japan with the intention of opening the country up, violently, if necessary, for trade with the United States. And these ships had enough weaponry of sufficient scale and power to basically disallow the Japanese from even being able to put up a fight. They didn't have anything comparable in their arsenal. Japanese leadership was staggered by the realization that just a handful of foreign ships could put them in this position, and it led to a period of concessions with the Americans in which the Japanese, against their will, began to trade in a limited way with the outside world, while also in the background preparing themselves, modernizing their fleets and other weapons, to ensure that they would be able to stand toe-to-toe with the outsiders in any potential future conflict. Even this relatively balanced outcome was a public relations nightmare for the shogunate, however, which had essentially been embarrassed in front of their own people after a long period of declaring the moral correctness of isolation and not wanting to deal with the essentially impure barbarians that lived beyond their shores. It should be noted, too, that the trade agreements that Japan agreed to during this period, all from the business end of a bunch of cannons, were very one-sided in favor of pretty much any country that could show up at their ports with modern gunships. It was a very embarrassing state of affairs for the country, and this is what triggered the aforementioned fairly rapid adoption of outside technologies and science. They were slapped in the face with how behind they were in some areas of research and development, and that did not go over well with anyone, including traditionalists who still wanted to remain isolated and who were pissed off that they were being told that they couldn't do that anymore. The Japanese economy soon collapsed due to the influx of outside goods and money. They also faced a fairly devastating cholera epidemic, which was also brought in by the foreigners who showed up to trade. 
the still-in-control Tokugawa shogunate began a multi-year effort to kill anyone who publicly opposed this new trade and outsider-accepting policy that the government had adopted. But it didn't stick, and the emperor eventually stepped in, against all tradition and custom, to declare that the outsiders needed to be forced out. But the resulting pushback against Westerners turned out about the same as it did the first time around, and the one-sided trade treaties remained in place due to the overwhelming military force that their potential opposition could bring to bear. The eventual consequence of this period was the Meiji Restoration, which led to the reintroduction of practical imperial rule, that is, the emperor and his people actually governing rather than just being symbolic offices mostly controlled by a military government. So this approach to governance was re-implemented for the first time in quite a long time during this period. In 1868, the political system was realigned under the emperor, and as part of this restructuring of society, Japan industrialized and militarized very, very quickly, and up to competitive modern standards in both cases. This was the beginning of the Empire of Japan, when the formerly isolated feudal society began to outcompete their Western trade partners, getting rid of some of their traditional cultural distinctiveness in the process, but also innovating upon much of what they learned from the outside world as they did so. What I'd like to talk about today is what happened next for Japan the Empire and then for Japan, the unitary parliamentary constitutional monarchy, and what's happening there now as the longest ever serving prime minister of Japan steps down in the midst of a global economic and health crisis. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The Meiji period of Japan, as I mentioned in the intro, heralded the beginning of Japan as an empire, meaning they not only internally restructured and upgraded, they also began to use the newfound power that came with all that change to expand their control beyond their existing borders, first opting to claim the Ryukyu Islands from Taiwan's sphere of influence, then taking on China directly to claim Taiwan itself. Japan flexed its newfound military muscle to renegotiate those incredibly unequal trade treaties with several European nations, then took on Russia in the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 and 1905, which resulted in a surprise victory for the Japanese a surprise to the Western nations who assumed their own superiority, over Asian nations at least, which allowed them to claim Korea as a protectorate, kind of a sub-nation under their military protection, before annexing the peninsula entirely in 1910. Japan's manufacturing industries boomed during this period, and so did their population, increasing from about 34 million to 52 million between 1872 and 1915. Socialism became popular for a brief spell before being quashed by the government, but before it died off, it fed a burgeoning democracy movement within the country, which arguably peaked in the mid-1920s when Japan fought in World War I on the side of the victorious allies, 
which further improved their economic and diplomatic fortunes, but also fed the credibility of the heavily right-leaning government, which became increasingly influenced by fascist and nationalist movements happening elsewhere around the world at this time. Far-right extremists eventually carried out a series of assassinations of political leaders, followed by the takeover of the political system by the heavily right-leaning military which fed into a new war with China, which Japan won, though that pseudo-victory only landed them in a stalemate in the country until the end of World War II, and they abolished political parties in the country in 1940, with the military more or less running things under the figurehead of the emperor, though he was maybe a figurehead with a decent amount of power. Historians still debate this quite a bit to this day. The United States was not so keen on Japan's invasion of China and their seeming attempt to take over all of Asia. So the U.S. passed a bunch of harsh economic sanctions on the country, intending to slow Japan's military machine. But this depletion of resources pushed Japan to form an alliance with Germany and Italy, emboldening them to successfully invade the collection of regions that were then called French Indochina, but which today includes most or part of Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, which further amped up tensions. Those tensions eventually reaching a breaking point when Japan broke the embargo against them militarily, and then surprise attacked the U.S. fleet based at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. World War II was filled with fairly spectacular victories for Japan's military, but it was often incredibly difficult for their civilians, which was true to some degree for normal people whose countries were involved in this conflict around the world, no matter where they were on the planet, but it was especially true for this rapidly industrializing country with few natural resources that had very recently spread itself so thin, conquering and attempting to hold new colonial territory that it thought would help it stand as equals alongside the mostly European nations that had in very recent history bullied and abused them so badly, in part able to do so because they were colonialist empires. Ultimately, Japan and their allies lost the war, and life became even more difficult in some ways for Japanese citizens back home as a result of that. But things stabilized relatively quickly and then got quite a bit better by many measures. The victorious Allied forces occupied the country in the years following the war from 1945 until 1952. General MacArthur, a U.S. general, ruled over the country during this period and, in a very military fashion, implemented political and cultural reforms in the region, including the breaking up of the dominant political and economic conglomerates, redistributing wealth from modern feudal lords to the folks who worked the land and the businesses on the ground, and promoting unionization amongst workers across all industries. Japan's colonies were granted independence, and the military was taken apart and banned. The emperor was allowed to stay on the throne, though he was no longer allowed to claim divinity, as was previously the case. And a checks and balances laden government system was installed, alongside a new constitution that granted, among other rights, civil liberties, workers' rights, and women's suffrage. 
The United States' presence continued in the region until 1972, but Japanese leadership took over most aspects of society almost immediately after the war. And the first prime minister, after that handoff, established a policy of close relations with the United States and a focus on economic development instead of international power building and chest thumping. By 1955, ten years after the war ended, Japan's economy was bigger than it was before the war. By 1968, the economy was the second largest capitalism-based economy in the world. Life expectancy rose substantially during the next several decades, as did income, general health outcomes, gross national product, and pretty much every other metric of economic and individual success and flourishing. By late 1987, the Japanese Nikkei Stock Market Index had become the largest in the world, due in part to Japan's recent dominance of the automobile and electronics industries. In 1989, though, Japan's new golden age began to subside, first slowly and then very rapidly. As a local economic bubble popped, asset prices dropped precipitously, and the country's economy fell into a deflationary black hole that was made worse by all the debt banks had accumulated during the recent boom times. This economic frailty carried over into the lives of individuals, feeding a decline in birth rate and a sense of malaise for investors, both internally and externally. The period from about 1991 until 2001 is often referred to as Japan's lost decade, as those economic factors and their associated or subsequent cultural repercussions crushed GDP, stock valuations, asset prices, and many locals' sense of growth and prosperity. Many recent assessments of this period have expanded its scope to include the decade between 2001 and 2011, making it a lost 20 years, during which the economy suffered, entire industries collapsed or shrunk, personal incomes decreased on average, and price levels stagnated. One major success story during this same period, in contrast to the overall bleak economic numbers and downward-trending everything that has defined Japan's performance for the better part of two decades, is the expansion and popularity of Japanese pop culture around the world, in the form of video games, but also anime, manga, and Japanese film, which have become highly influential internationally providing at least some upward-moving stats, even in the midst of a period that has otherwise been pretty difficult to weather, both economically and socially. That historical context established. The article I'd like to unspool today comes from The Economist, and it's entitled, End of an Era. Abe Shinzo resigns, leaving formidable problems for his successor, with the subtitle, Japan's new prime minister must grapple with huge debts, a shrinking population, an aggressive China, and an unpredictable America. Abe Shinzo, or Shinzo Abe, as he's more typically called in the English-speaking world, I'll mostly be referring to him as Abe in this episode, as that's his family name, but it's worth noting that in 2019, there was a renewed push by Japanese officials to get folks in the international press to use the traditional Japanese naming convention of putting the family name first instead of second. 
though this push hasn't been very well adopted and it seems to be kind of a PR move by nationalist interests within the current government. But also changing style guides for newspapers typically takes a while if you want to see widespread adoption. So just note that as you hear more about these topics in the future, you may hear it as Abe Shinso or Shinso Abe. It's the same person. In any case, Abe has been the longest ever serving prime minister of Japan, having served four terms in office initially taking office in 2006 through 2007, then resigning when his party lost its majority that year. Abe stuck with his parliamentary lower house seat and didn't make much noise for several years until he became the leader of his party in 2012, the same year that they again took the majority, and they then approved Abe as the prime minister once more. Abe is a political conservative and has generally favored policies that augment Japan's diplomatic influence around the world, that strengthen its ties with traditional allies like the United States, and that take an assertive stance against regional threats like North Korea and China. With his second term, Abe introduced a fairly sweeping and aggressive trio of policies that he branded Abenomics which were meant to help address the aforementioned deflationary spiral the country was suffering through, while also allowing the government to be more flexible with its fiscal policy overall. This set of policies gets pretty mixed reviews, though some economists think that they probably helped quite a bit, if not as much as advertised when the concept was initially being introduced. And it's also generally agreed that they faltered pretty substantially with the advent of the 2019 trade war issues between the United States and China, a problem that has had negative repercussions for economies around the world, but Japan's more than most, due to their proximity to and involvement with transoceanic trade in the region. Abe has been controversial in some regards, due to his support for axing the pacifist provision of the country's modern constitution, the part of their constitution that says that they won't have a military except for fundamental protection purposes, so no declarations of war and no overtly offensive military capabilities. He's also been controversial because he's what you might broadly call a hard-right nationalist, a perspective that has led to his support for revisionist history books, which don't mention or in some cases change some of the somewhat horrible things the government has done throughout history, and which instead focus on the glorious, beneficent, and impressive aspects of that same history. In some cases, even going so far as to outright deny that well-documented historical happenings, like the Japanese military's abuse and use of women from the nations that they invaded leading up to and during World War II never occurred. That said, because of the structure of the country, and because of how relatively tame nationalism can look in modern Japan compared to how it looks in some other countries, Abe has been considered a fairly reliable, drama-free leader from the outside perspective of many wealthy, well-connected countries around the world. Japan under Abe has served as a major supporter of international institutions like the United Nations and a reliable trading partner and military ally. The U.S. in particular has seemed to enjoy having Abe at the helm for as long as he's been there because he 
doesn't rock the boat in ways that have mattered overmuch to U.S. policy, and he's generally seemed to be happy to play along with the machinations of many other internationally powerful nations as well, seldom seeking out or stoking conflict. But on August 28th of 2020, Abe announced his resignation due to a long-standing health problem that he's suffered from for decades, but which has recently become too pressing for him to both focus on coping with it and running the country at the same time. And in spotlighting Abe's exit, we also spotlight Japan's current situation, which, at the moment, is far less than ideal. Which, to be fair, is something that you could say of just about every economy and government on the planet in the COVID era. As I record this, the COVID-19 pandemic is still surging throughout the world, relatively unchecked, with no reliable, well-tested, near-future vaccine on the agenda, and a great deal of politicized behaviors, misinformation, and outright denial, from government officials all the way down to the average Joe on the street, causing it to spread further than it might otherwise. The net consequence of this pandemic will be catastrophic, the whole of the global economy suffering repercussions of the economic, medical, and likely psychological and political variety for a long while into the future. It's been pretty bad on multiple levels. But Japan was perhaps in a worse situation than most wealthy economies when this thing hit, due in part to having invested so heavily in a Tokyo-based Olympic Games event that may not take place now, even in delayed form, alongside existing structural weaknesses, increased aggression, both economic and military, from China in their shared waters, and a relatively quickly declining population due to birth rate issues, but also issues with getting foreign workers into the country and convincing them to stick around long enough to matter for these purposes. Combine this with an aging population, a slew of recent natural disasters, a handful of major governmental failures, capped with the same from other institutions in which people might otherwise put their trust, like major business entities, and somewhat unreliable signals from previously staunch allies like South Korea and the United States, both of which have been focused on their own sets of issues back home, but also both of which have, to some degree, been iterating their international relationships over the past handful of years, and not necessarily in ways that benefit Japan. This makes solid ground, politically, economically, and culturally, hard to find in Japan at the moment. And that was true even before the pandemic hit, a pandemic which has then amplified all of those issues. Abe himself leaves office with quite a few minor scandals on his record, including his slow response to the COVID-19 pandemic, but also actions related to his nationalistic beliefs, his desire to remilitarize the country, and his support and favors for various personal allies within his political party and amongst his, at times, non-political but strongly ideological fellow travelers. The consequence of these scandals and notable underperformances is that Abe will leave office with an approval rating in the high 20s, 
which is not very good, that's out of a hundred, and the disarray in which he leaves the office and the slew of problems yet unsolved for any potential future prime minister, has many commentators and analysts wondering why anyone would want to fill his shoes once he's gone. There are at least a handful of people who are keen to become the next prime minister, though, and the wheeling and dealing within Abe's dominant political party has already begun and they will be the party to decide who takes the seat when Abe steps down. And whether the former defense minister, who is the current favorite amongst those speculating in this space, wins the day, or the second most favored candidate, a prominent critic of Abe and his policies, takes up the mantle of power, or whether someone else manages to wrangle the position away from those currently seemingly in the best position to ascend, there will be a lot of work on their plate from day one, Though in some ways, Abe's lackluster performance in his final days in office could potentially pave the way for a favorable reception, no matter what, if only by comparison. We should know who will be the next Prime Minister of Japan sometime mid-September 2020, which means there will still be a good deal of the year left to face for whomever replaces Abe and inherits his many and varied problems. Important to remember, though, no matter who is in charge and the circumstances surrounding them, Japan is still the third largest economy in the world, has the fourth most powerful military, even if they don't have the legal right to declare war at the moment, and they have the world's second highest life expectancy and a booming exportable culture that they can continue to expound upon. All of which is to say that things have lined up against Japan for quite a while, and they still managed to do okay, despite all that. Abe's absence might change some of how the country functions in the geopolitical landscape of 2020 and beyond, but there are enough fundamentals in place that it seems possible that they could enjoy an upswing as international trade finds a new resting point, and the global economy, upon which much of Japan's flourishing is predicated, re-establishes itself, even if perhaps in an unfamiliar new shape. The documentary that I'd like to recommend today is called The Reagan Show. And I watched this on Hulu. I believe it's available on other networks as well. In some cases, it might be free if you have a subscription. In other cases, you might have to pay a few bucks for it. But this is a film that came out in 2017. And it's interesting in part because it's the type of documentary that doesn't have narration. The entire story is told through documentary footage. And this documentary footage is primarily of the Ronald Reagan administration here in the United States. And Reagan was particularly interesting in part because he serves as sort of a source of inspiration, maybe even a figurehead, of the modern Republican political movement here in the United States, but also in part because he was an actor turned politician who was quite successful at it, and that success was predicated in part on how well scripted everything was, and how much footage was shot of this president compared to any other president in history, and how well they used that footage to build a sort of brand around him. Now again, this is a documentary that you can watch, whatever your political stripe, it's very interesting, 
And a big part of that interest is based on what it shows about the evolution of the presidency and also how vital the media and the storyline created around a presidency is for the operation of state, but also for the promulgation of certain ideologies and of the character, or you might say caricature in some cases, of the president in question. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider finding and watching The Reagan Show. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. And you can find me on your social network of choice. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on most of the rest of them. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.